I would lie awake at night and think about how can I get out of this situation? And it became very rational to think about killing myself. It's preventable. The whole process of suicide is preventable. And once you understand that, then you know there's some help somewhere for you. If you can find it quickly, great. But if it takes a long time, that is difficult, very difficult. That's Simon Greaves, who we're going to hear more from shortly. In Scotland, men are three times more likely to commit suicide than women. And within Scotland, here in the Highlands, we have some of the highest figures for male suicide. According to the statistics available before the pandemic, those figures were on the up. I'm Bruce McGregor. I've lived and worked in the Highlands all my life and through both my professional life as a musician and businessman and through my passion for playing rugby, I've known of far too many cases of people taking their own life. It's a sad fact that just about all of us here in the Highlands knows someone touched by suicide. The aim of this podcast, Speaking of Suicide, is simply to share stories and experiences. It isn't all about suicide. Some of the stories you'll hear are about just many of us struggling with the day-to-day stuff of life. The point of the podcast is to get more of us talking. If we don't talk about it honestly and openly, then there's a danger that those statistics will keep on going up with devastating consequences. But we hope you'll also be able to see these stories as a celebration of life and the fact that no matter where you're at just now, it's worth holding on and getting help. With that in mind, throughout the podcast, we've got reminders of how you can get in touch with Mikey's line and at the end of the story, we've got some useful tricks for when you're struggling. Speaking of Suicide has been funded by the Highland-based family firm D&D Paving Limited because the construction industries suffer from particularly high rates of male suicide and they wanted to do something to help. No matter what industry you work in, tell people about this podcast. Like, comment, subscribe, share it. If we manage to help one person step back from taking their own life, then we've succeeded. And please remember, if you're listening to this and it becomes too much, you can always hit the pause button. We might. We might get some wildlife, we might not. Uh, the north wind will usually keep them down a bit. Yeah. But he'll set anything off as well. That's fine, that's fine. He found a little stoat yesterday, which was lovely to see, and it's full ermine, so it's white. I'm speaking of Suicide Series producer, Dan Holland. And the man taking me for a walk today is mountain guide, Simon Greaves. Okay, Dan, you're in the middle of uh, the Glenlivet estate up in the northeast Cairngorm. So this is Tom and Tal, a village that was actually built by the Duke of Gordon, if I'm correct, uh, to, uh, to try and stop all the illegal whiskey production. So his great idea was build a village here. Everybody would come into the village, stop producing whiskey and smuggling it. And uh, his idea was that he'd grow flax and they'd make linen. That didn't work, so there's a lot of whiskey here. <laughs> so you're in whiskey country as well. So Tom and Tal, as a whiskey, is a well-known whiskey. So Tom and Tal, yes, isolated, 30 miles from anywhere, which is, uh, you would call, well, civilization's a strange word to use, but uh, Grand Town's mostly its nearest place, Grand Town on Spay. And we are now very, very specifically down by the Arn River, which flows from the central Cairngorm, from Lock Arn, 
and feeds into the spay further down at Ballandalloc. So that's where you are, Dan. And, and have you always lived up here, Simon? What, what, no. This no. part of the country? No, no, no. I mean, I've always been involved with the mountains from a young lad, but I, was, uh, I grew up in the Peak District uh, in the National Park there. Uh, I had a good friend who I'd worked with before who came up here instead of a more guiding business himself. And I used to come up and do the high guide up in the Cairngorm at the back here at, um, on Ben Arn. So for the Tom and Talon Glenlivet Walking Festival, which unfortunately doesn't exist anymore. But I used to come up and do that. As a young student many, many years ago, I'd come up with the Mountaineering Club up to places that you know well, like Anchelic, uh, more into the Glencoe area and in the winters when winters were really good then so you can guarantee an Easter up here and it would be still full winter and as I moved on from my last career in education uh, I was looking for something else I was in my mid-50s I'd actually uh, spent some time um, helping two guys across the high route of the Pyrenees so with lightweight multi-day trekking and I thought this is a great place to do that. Where can I do that in the UK? There's only Scotland you can do it, and it made sense to do it here. Um, the environment is actually wonderful for getting people out and vanishing for two, three, four, five days, doing Munro's if they want or whatever. So we set it up as a second seed business, so seven, eight years later, here we are. I can see the smile on your <laughs> face. You can probably hear the smile on your face yes. as well. Yeah. But. What do you get from being in the in the, the open environment? We can hear the birds singing. There's still snow on the hills. There's a pheasant in the background. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the thing about for me for the for the outdoor environment, and it's very personal, isn't it? For everybody, it can be a, for many people. Sorry, it can be a, a wonderful experience for some people. It's a nightmare. So tell them they're going camping for two days in the high mountains that will be their, their worst nightmare ever. For me, it, uh, it gives me a kind of mindfulness without working at it. I think that's how I would like to describe that. It, it, it's, it's inherent to sit out for us all, I think, in nature, to be in nature, to just be in nature. To me, that's what it does for me. Um, in terms of if you want to stre stretch it towards well-being, uh, if I really want to sit with myself for some time, this is the place to be for me. There's no intrusion. I can go away from people, which is something I like doing occasionally. Not always, I like people, but getting away from people is for me um, a nice way to, to, uh, to booster myself, to feed my soul, as I call it. Uh, so the mountains uh, have that attraction for me. It's a really big change from the, the classroom environment that you described earlier on to coming to this part of the world. So how did that transition for you start to come about? What, what caused you to do that? OK, in terms of uh, my life has always been involved with the outdoors, outdoor education, rock climbing as a young lad. Going into schools teaching was uh, something initially all I wanted to do was outdoor education. But at the time I, uh, I trained in Sheffield, I worked in South Yorkshire, and uh, at that time the economics weren't so good for outdoor centres, they were closing a lot of them down, selling them off. So I actually went into mainstream education, which was fine, and always worked in schools where I could help um, develop outdoor schemes with children, 
Why did I end up here at the age of 55, 54? Is because I came to a crisis point in my life. Um, I was in a situation where I was in management in schools. I was also a consultant for something called SEAL, which is social emotional aspects of learning, uh, which is a whole hidden curriculum, if you like, and sometimes a very explicit curriculum as well, if the school wants it to be, developing children all the way through from four to 18 and on, on the, the domains of life, if you call. So, I, I mean, the, the domains of life are very, everybody has to go through them, everybody lives them every day. So you're looking at managing feelings, managing people, empathy, social skills, intrasocial skills and intersocial skills and uh, self-awareness. And I hit a wall of being accountable, uh, holding people to account, being scrutinized and scrutinizing people. And for me, the pressure built over a number of years to the point where I was seeing other people being very ill, their well-being very poorly affected, both physically, but very much mentally. What I was seeing was people who were so physically and mentally exhausted, so much under pressure and stress, that they were getting to the point you could see the breakdown in them. You could see the tears in their eyes in the morning as they worked, walked into the workplace. I could, I could also spend a lot of time getting into the school, if you like, at six o'clock in the morning and spending an hour and a, hour and a half with certain members of staff listening to them. I mean, listening was certainly key. So, and also seeing their pain to the extent where some people would open up about their feelings of suicide and what they felt they were going to do because they could see no way out of their situation. And my help would be, I'm listening, I'm signposting, please go here, please do that, go to your doctor. Um, and that I, I wasn't counseling people, I was just listening to people. And, and people who were getting to the point where they needed help. Doing that, I didn't look after myself. And not looking after myself, I didn't see the signs that I was seeing in other people. I don't know if that's a common thing, but for me, it took me by surprise. And to me, that was a point where I, I, I hit this, as I call it, this wall, when I, I just couldn't do that anymore. And I think I described to you before, I walked out of my setting where I was working on a Thursday morning at 10 o'clock and I went straight to my doctor. And he said, look, we've gone through this conversation. You are not clinically depressed. You are severely clinically depressed. And a lot of it is circumstances. You've put yourself in circumstances that have gone on for a number of years and you are breaking, you are broken virtually, and we need to mend that. And to me, that was a, a shock in itself, that this strong extrovert character was being told that he was, to me at that point, a failure, that I'd let things get on top of me to that extent. I would lie awake at night and think about how can I get out of this situation? And it became very rational to think about killing myself. Um, which seems strange at the time saying that, but it seemed that I was in pain, but I didn't really, it wasn't even about, I didn't know what to do about it, because I did, because I was telling other people what to do about it, but I thought it was a weakness in me and I could override it. So I didn't do anything about it. And that just built and built and built.
Uh, what it didn't build is to a, po a point where I attempted suicide. I never attempted suicide. I thought about it pretty much continually. For, for, unless I was really doing something like hard physical exercise or so focused on the work I was doing in my workplace. Otherwise, the rest of the time, I would be thinking about how do I get out of this situation? And one of the, the rational option to me at that time was suicide because the pain will be gone. Now, if you, you, your question next may be say, why didn't you? And for me, the reason I didn't go any further because I had commitments to my family. I had um, very strong, very strong commitments to my daughters and to my, my wife, Kerry. And I thought, if I commit suicide, if I complete suicide, what guilt do I throw onto them? How do they live on after that? How do you put that on people? For me personally, that was something that was always going to stop me going any further. And the breaking point that I got to, thank goodness, was to go and get help that I was always telling people to go and get and I realised I needed it myself. How long was all this going on for, Simon? Two years, about two years. It's a, it's, it sounds a long time, and, and to me, it's, it's in the past, it's gone, the, 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 the thought is still there. Um, not necessarily the suicide thought. Um, depression is still there, but it's, I describe it sometimes as like, um, a deep fish in a deep sea that it's it's down there somewhere and sometimes it will rise a bit but I know how to cope with it because I got those strategies that worked for me I got that help that worked for me from going and asking for help and I think when we're talking about suicide young people old people as well we, we talk a lot about young people and it's it, it is the key area that that is uh, problematic but um, once people are offered help and can open up, then that will prevent suicides. I'm pretty convinced of that. And it's, it's that initial step. Um, how are you feeling? How can I help? Those sort of questions that people need to be asked. And we know that for young men in particular, those are difficult questions. Would you have wanted someone to come and speak to you to break that conversation? Or did you keep everything so masked and so hidden, even from Kerry, that yeah. she didn't know? Well, uh, yes, uh, Kerry doesn't know some of the things I'm mostly telling you now about the lie. She knew I wasn't right. And she knew that I was in a very difficult situation. I'm, I'm not going to go down the detailed description of that for various reasons. Um, but she knew that I was suffering, but she thought I was coping as well because I was virtually telling I was coping. Um, you know, and uh, it is classically as well, you put on a brave face. You used the term before, that horrible expression of man up. Yeah, that's most probably what I was doing at the time. Um, I was, I could bounce out of bed still in the morning, put a smile on, go to school, teach a class, take meetings, do whatever, uh, do my job, and then go back into that cycle of lying in bed again at night, uh, thinking this isn't good. We'll continue with Simon in just a moment, but don't forget, it's okay not to be okay. And if you need someone to talk to, you can text Mikey's Line on 07786 207755 or contact them via Messenger, web chat or Twitter. Sunday to Thursday, 6pm till 10pm and Friday to Saturday, 7pm to 7am. 
when you walked out of school yeah. that morning yeah. at 10 a.m., yeah. what was the trigger that made you walk out and did you know what you were walking into? The trigger, uh, Dan, is, is disgusting. It was, I was being criticised for helping someone who called for help. That's what made me walk out. So I was criticised for that and I said, I can't do this anymore. I'm gone and I walked out. Um, and already that relief of walking out from that situation, getting in my car, driving and phoning the doctor and say, can I have an appointment? And again, I go back, it was the doctor I wanted to see. Um, and then having that conversation and by the hour and a half I spent with the doctor and the plan he'd put in place, I was already healing because I'd taken that step. It just needed that. He was a great listener. His, he had good experience, personal experience from his own family of mental well-being. Um, he was very quick to ask, act. He said, it is, you need to be out of the circumstances, so I'm taking that decision away from you. You don't go back. You will never go back there. He said, you don't want drugs. I don't want to give you drugs for this. It works for some. This isn't for you. The circumstances are making you feel like that. Take you away from the circumstances. Get you talking on talking therapies. Let's see where we go from there. And that's what worked for me. And also realising that the, people talk about it a lot, don't they? The, the, the mind, when it's like that, is broken a bit like a broken leg. It needs time to heal. So I said, what do I do in between all these sessions I'm going to with this, um, with this council? He says, you do what makes you feel good. So at that time, I was very much into road biking. So I used to cycle. So I'd get up in the morning. I kept routine. I'd get up in the morning, have breakfast and cycle. And Kerry would come back from work and she said, what do you do today? I said, I cycled. And she said, where did you cycle? I said, I don't know, I just cycle. Going wherever, just cycling and cycling because it emptied and healed. I'm interested to explore how, how your mindset changed and how your emotions changed having walked into the surgery and starting to talk. Once you felt you were able to talk and open up, how did things change in, in your mind, in your self-esteem, in your thoughts about yourself okay so straight away i stopped feeling as though i was failing um that i'd done the right thing and i was being reassured by somebody i trusted who would say everything you were doing was correct except you weren't looking after yourself and the the other thing that i realized at that point with with this person's help was the weakness that i perceived was actually a strength that he said if you were really weak, you'd have killed yourself ages ago. You'd have finished it. You'd have walked away from everything. You'd have finished the situation. Your strength is that you had resilience and you stuck at it. And that's what he said you find with a lot of people who go into depression, clinical depression, and even suicidal, deep suicidal, suicidal thoughts, is that they're strong people. And I took a lot of heart out of that because that made me feel less of a failure and more of value. And so straight away your self-esteem is boosted. And the rational 
everything is rational thinking, isn't it? You know, I talked about suicide at one point being the very rational thought. It became more of an irrational thought. And to me, that was the way, the right direction. How can we start to open up the conversation among men in particular and break down this perceived thought that talking about our mental health, talking openly about suicide is not a weakness. Dan, like all things, it starts when the child is born and it starts very much in school. If schools have the capacity and the skills to do it. And one of the things that I was developing with over 90 schools at one point is that we should be getting kids to be emotionally literate, have emotional intelligence, but the literate side of it is very important. So you and I, you know, relatively well-educated guys, will have quite a few, few words we can express our emotions with. A lot of people have four or five, love, hate, anger, you know, and anger, frustration, etc. different things. So getting children to understand those, in the English language, I think there's nearly 2,700 words you can express your feelings with, and most people don't use those. And already we're not encouraging a language that lets us express our feelings. It's also, I suspect, always offering that opportunity of there being someone there to help whether that's an advocate in a school who's there for someone to go to, a trusted someone a child can go to. If someone who is in despair knows they can go to someone and say, look, I need help, that's great. But it's the step before, isn't it? It's, it's someone saying to them, are you OK? Are you all right? And really meaning it. And I'm not just saying that. Like, we all say, how are you? Yeah, and you know, I'm fine. No, are you really fine? Are you really OK? Because you, you may not see what's going on with that person. They hide it. A lot of people do hide their depression and their thoughts, and they will be the life and soul of the party, and then, bang, they're gone. And we've all missed it. And it's how do you step in and find where you're missing the, the signs, because there will be little signs somewhere. Do you think if you looked back on your life now with someone else, with Kerry, on life before you walked out of the classroom... Would there be that trail of signs, the trail of clues that, with hindsight, might cumulatively paint a different picture as to your mindset at the time? Yes, definitely. Definitely. I, I, I know there would have been signs. I know people did ask me how I was doing, and I said, I'm fine. I'm OK. But I wasn't. These didn't dig deep enough. <laughs> and that's a really difficult conversation to, uh, to start, isn't it? If you don't know how to, because it's partly about you perhaps not wanting to open up, but perhaps needing to. But for me, for example, I need the tools or the, the right... Yeah, I guess I need the tools and the right questions and the right vocabulary to be able to say to, say to you, Simon, you know, I've seen a real change in you in the last couple of weeks and, and you're worrying me. Can we talk about it? Or, Simon, you just are not yourself. Yeah, and I, I think you're absolutely right. So it, it's not putting it on schools, but schools should have all their staff, all their staff, who are aware of this kind of process that you're talking about. Workplaces should. So you should have a... It's, it's, it's healthcare first aid in a way, isn't it? It's an emergency first aid. But it's not just 
for one person in the school really to be doing or the workplace or wherever it should be everybody should have that training and it's not it's not rocket science it's going back to what i'm saying it's the listening it's the asking the question and then being able to say right this is where we can help where we can take that burden away from you and then perhaps that person who criticized you for helping someone else if they were better informed better yeah. educated better informed um, that person would have been under tremendous stress as well like me yeah so uh, it's it, it's it's not forgivable in some ways but it's understandable um, for me it was really tough yeah let's think about now you Simon described about how this these thoughts were there in your mind and now when you were talking you almost pushed your hands down beside and behind you <laughs> to say that they're, they're, they're parked yeah how do you cope manage them on a day to day a week to week month okay. to month okay before when I was in the, in, in the worst of situations it's very hard to see an end and that's where the rational side of suicide comes into because that is a, a rational end at that point if now and like everybody I have sad days some days I find it difficult to be motivated and motivated motivation is key isn't it the first thing I know is that if it got really bad I could go to somebody and find help because I did it before so once you've had that experience you'll go back to it because it works uh, the second thing is, I also know that it will pass more than likely. It'll be a day of not feeling 100%. Or if it continues and continues, I have strategies that I can go to. And going out the hills with a tent for me is a strategy. By myself with a dog. That will do very nicely, thank you. And um, I, I, th this peace and this mindfulness, this, this no pressure situation no people no social media nothing coming in at you and just sitting up on the top of a benarn in your tent there which hardly anybody goes up to except from the other side to munro back um you can be very 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 alone and for me that works now for a lot of people that does not work and it wouldn't be a, even a recommended way to go but for me it's great so that's how i cope or i'll get on my bike and just thrash the bike as they say and uh, go on the rivet for a bit it's preventable the whole process of suicide is preventable and once you understand that then you know there's some help somewhere for you if you can find it quickly great but if it takes a long time that is difficult very difficult I'm going to ask this question very very carefully okay have there been positives out of your experience, Simon? Okay, so initially when you walk out of a workplace and you, you get to the point where you think, what's the future going to be? You could say, that's me finished. I'm going to sit on sick pay or whatever for the rest of my life and just <sighs> stagnate maybe. I'm not, never have been that kind of person. So the positives for me is it made me think about the future more and what I wanted to do for myself and for my family. We made the decision to pack up our life in one place and come here to Tom and Tal and set up a business, which was very much second see would this work? And for, fortunately it worked. 
and it's given us a wonderful life here. So the other positive has to be that on the occasions where people have talked to me and I can see the signs and I can feel the hurt in their voice, I can, I can help in a small way. The same as doing this podcast. The only reason I'm doing this is not for your benefit, Dan. It's for the benefit of the people who listen might say, okay, I can latch onto that. That's gonna help me. Yeah, if it's one person, then the whole thing has to be worthwhile. So that is a key positive as well. The other positive is by going through that process, I know now how to cope with it and I will hopefully live into my old age I see the positives. It's helped me through the next part of my life in a big way. And I haven't finished with my desires and dreams of what I'm going to do in the future as well. What would you say to anyone listening to this who is struggling now, today, who might be in a similar sort of position to you? If they're lucky and they know someone they can go to, go now and ask for help. And if they can't help you, say, well, who can help me then? And if they still can't give you the answer, then you need to get, I would suspect, online and look for places like Mikey's Line, obviously, where people can help you, can listen to you, can ask those questions, can signpost you. Just don't do it by yourself. It is very, very, very hard if not impossible to 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 work yourself out of those thoughts of suicide when they become rational and i keep going back to that word you know because people a lot of people who've never had those thoughts will think well what a silly thing to be doing well, isn't this irrational but it's not I've, when you get to that point it's a very rational way to think um so it is finding the right place now the problem is it's easy for me to say that in my little world but what if you are in a terrible situation, wherever, in an inner city, you've no money, you've no life, you've no future from what you see, where do you go? How do you get that help? It becomes very, very difficult. And that's why it is very important to have Samaritans, Mikey's Line, all those places where you can be helped. Dan was talking to Simon Greaves. It's been wonderful speaking to you. It's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. And uh, I hope you come back. A reminder of Mikey's line. If you or someone you know needs help and advice, you can text 07786 207755 or contact them via Messenger, web chat or Twitter. It's available Sunday to Thursday, 6pm till 10pm and Friday and Saturday, 7pm to 7am. Here's Shona McPherson from Mikey's Line with a few thoughts for you to mull over. Simon kind of fits the picture of risk factors for suicide. He was a middle-aged man at the time he was telling us about. He was under great stress and he was suffering from depression and he shared that stigma and shame stopped him asking for help. And in time, he began to develop suicidal thoughts. Suicidal thoughts are really common. About one in five of us at some point in our life will develop suicidal thoughts. And they're not necessarily that we want to end our life, but rather we're feeling entrapped and they're a means of escape. Things become really concerning when we move from a generalised feeling of not wanting to be alive to having a specific plan. 
if we have a plan for ending our life, means to do it and a time frame to do it in, then we're really at risk and it's very important that we get help. Suicidal thoughts are an indication that we're not okay. They're an indication that we need to get help. One of the key things that stops us getting help is shame. Shame breeds in an environment of secrecy and of judgment, of self-judgment. But if we can have the courage to say we're not okay and ask someone for help, and if we're listened to and we receive empathy, then shame will not survive in that environment. When Simon asked for help, he asked a very skilled GP and got help and things began to change for him. Um, it wasn't that the thoughts or the feelings went away, but his relationship to them changed. They didn't have the same power over him anymore. So it's the same for all of us. If we can ask for help, then things will shift for us. It might not be that we get help exactly the way we want it or in the time frame we want it, but we at Mikey's Line can help you while you are in crisis and we can help you link in with other professionals for that longer term support. You can text us every evening on our text line, which is 077-86-207-755. Speaking of Suicide is an adventurous audio production made possible thanks to the support of D&D Paving Limited in partnership with Mikey's Line. Next time on Speaking of Suicide... Suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem for the person who takes their own life. Uh It's a permanent problem for everyone who's left behind. Yeah, we live with that every single day. And the pain is, you know, it's almost like you're walking around, you've got your family, the light's on, you're smiling, you've got so much to look forward to, and then suddenly, bang, the light's gone off. Your heart's constantly heavy, you know, when you when you get that pang of thinking about him, just little things, you feel sick. Mm-hmm.